You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. We spent the last several weeks in uh, in a single chapter of Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. <clears throat> chapter 15, we've been there for a number of weeks for a good reason. Paul has profoundly important things to tell us about the future that should shape the way we live today. In Paul's typical style, he never tells you what to do until he's told you why to do it. Just so in this chapter as well. He reminds his readers of the gospel which they received, in which they continue to stand, and by which they are being saved. In one sense, their salvation is a done deal. It's complete and certain. As Paul wrote in Romans eight twenty nine to 30 For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Did you notice the past tense in that passage? Predestined, called, justified and glorified. When God begins a work like a work of salvation, he makes sure that he completes it. He doesn't start something and not finish it. In fact, it's so certain that Paul can speak of it as if it has already happened. Now that won't be the last time today that we see a future event spoken of as if it's past history. But in another sense, their salvation is incomplete. They and we still have a life to live. But holding fast to the gospel ensures salvation on that last day. It's why we must never let go of the gospel. It's why we can never afford to stray away from the gospel. In fact, Paul has insisted that if they abandon this gospel, the good news that Christ died for their sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised again in accordance with the scriptures, an event that was witnessed by hundreds of people at the time, if they reject that, then they have nothing to hang their Christian faith on. And they should abandon any pretense of being Christians and live a life of debauchery. For without the gospel, there is no Christianity at all. There is no hope for the future at all. Therefore, as Paul says, eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Now Paul begins to wind up the chapter, if you've got your Bibles there, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll pick it up in verse 50, the last portion of this chapter. But Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the the imperishable. Now we looked last week at what stops us from entering into God's presence in these mortal, perishable bodies. It's because they're not designed to contain God's glory, nor are they designed to stand in the furious, blazing presence 
of his holiness. We would be consumed in an instant. That's because our bodies are weak, decaying and perishable. There are any number of diseases which vividly and gruesomely picture this state of decay. The most graphic of these might be leprosy, which is an easily treatable bacterial infection in the 21st century, but was a horror in years gone by. Leprosy does its nasty work by damaging your nerves so that you no longer sense pain in your extremities initially. You can put your hand directly on to a red hot stove and sizzle your flesh and not realise that you've done it. You can slice your leg open accidentally and get an infection that causes septicemia and not be aware of it until it's too late. If you're a leper living in the slums of a third world country, and this is pretty horrific to think about, but if you're a leper living in the slums of a third world country, rats might come and chew your finger off in the night. And you won't even know that it's happened until you wake up the next morning with one less finger. That's why many people believe that leprosy actually caused body parts to drop off. What was actually happening is the fact that they had no sense of pain meant that rats or other animals could chew body parts off and they wouldn't know. Now, leprosy is still rampant in some countries even today, in some of the poorer and less developed nations. Indonesia, for example, had 17,000 new cases of leprosy in 2019. Brazil had 28,000 new cases in 2019. India had more than 100,000 new cases. In fact, India has had more than a million new cases of leprosy in the last 10 years. And we're not entirely free from it here in Australia either. We've had 100 cases over the last 10 years here in Australia, mainly, I believe, up in the indigenous communities up north. The lepers are usually shunned by society. Partly it's because people are frightened of contracting the disease themselves, but it's also because the disease is so disfiguring that healthy people are sickened by the sight, and they shun them for that reason. When you're reading the Gospels and you see Jesus relating to lepers and lepers coming to him begging, think of that. These are the absolute dregs and outcasts of society at the time. Lepers were usually banished from the towns and the villages and had to live in, isolated, in isolation in colonies with fellow victims away from polite society. If they didn't have a family with the means or the heart to support them, they were forced to beg for food. Not a lot has changed in some nations. Leprosy is a truly tragic disease because the effects are so disfiguring and yet it's so easily treatable. As horrific as leprosy is, it's an extreme picture of the day the decay we experience daily in our bodies. Just as lepers weren't permitted to live in their villages and homes, so our decaying bodies won't be permitted in the new heaven and the new earth. They're not fit for life in a world where there's no decay. 
which is why God intends to fit us out, to clothe us with new bodies. As I said last week, our resurrection bodies will be the same but different to the ones we have now. They'll be new and improved versions. N.T. Wright puts it this way, this will not be a strange distortion of our original humanity, but will be the very thing that we were made for in the first place. He goes on to say, we need to be transformed into non-corruptible, undecaying material so that we become people over whom death has no more control. That's something to look forward to. A time when death has no more control over us. And that's just what the Lord has promised to us. So the dead will rise again with new improved bodies, but what happens to those who are still alive when Jesus returns? Paul goes on to say in verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Paul almost sounds like he thinks that this event's a possibility in his lifetime and it was, we have to say. We shall not all sleep, Paul says. But he also lived as though it was an, an event that wouldn't happen until who knows when in the future. There were some in his day who were so convinced that the second coming of Jesus Christ was about to happen that they stopped working. They stopped supporting their families. They stopped contributing to society. And this still happens today in some cults and amongst some Christians even. They withdraw from society, often to isolated properties or locations and gather around their cult leader waiting, waiting for a sign. Scripture never suggests that we should withdraw from the world. In fact, it tells us the opposite. It tells us we are to engage our society. In, uh, Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The Bible never calls us to drop out of society. Rather, it always and invariably calls us to engage the culture we live in and to engage it in ways that bring honour to Jesus Christ, representing him well. That's what being an ambassador for Christ is all about. An ambassador is of no use to anyone if he hides away in an embassy. He must represent his government publicly, and he must represent his government accurately and well to the people of the nation he's sent to. And so are we to do also, as ambassadors of Christ. One day, should Jesus return before we die, we'll be taken up bodily into his presence, our bodies being transformed in the process into imperishable, incorruptible and undecaying bodies. We won't be the first ones to experience this, of course. Enoch and Elijah both beat us to it. 
but I imagine it'll be a pretty special experience for the privileged few who remain when Jesus returns. Now, whether Paul thought that he'd be part of that event, we can't say for sure, because he says elsewhere in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? Then after a lengthy discussion about this coming lawlessness, Paul encourages his readers by saying, But we always ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits. That's the language about first fruits that we saw back in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 15. God chose you as first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Stand firm. Don't neglect the gospel. Hold fast to the truth. We'll see that same sort of language shortly in our passage in 1 Corinthians 15. And while you're standing firm, embrace the work of the Holy Spirit within you, who is shaping you to be godly and to be more like Christ every day. Verse 53, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Don't know if any of you have read the C.S. Lewis novel, The Great Divorce, I've referred to it on occasions in the past. It's a work of fiction which, like his other great work of fiction, The Screwtape Letters, contains great insights into spiritual realms. The basic thrust of the story is that the citizens of a city that he calls Greytown are able to catch a bus to the edge of heaven. Now, Greytown is a gloomy, sprawling and unpleasant place to live. But the outskirts of heaven are stunningly beautiful and brilliant with a river running through trees and beautiful green grass. The contrast between the two places could not be greater. Now while these visitors are there, they are welcomed by the inhabitants of heaven who invite them to not just visit the outskirts, but to go all the way in. Now very few accept the offer, and there's many reasons why they don't, and none of the reasons would surprise any Christian who's trying to convince a friend to put their trust in Christ. But there's one particular contrast between Greytown and the edge of heaven that matters to us here. When we think of spiritual things, of things related to the afterlife, we tend to think of it being sort of wispy, ethereal, ghostly, intangible stuff. And after all, Jesus did walk through a closed door after his resurrection. So it's got that sort of idea of ghostliness, if you like. This earthly life and environment is what seems to us to be solid and substantial and tangible. But in the great divorce, the opposite is true. 
turns out that the edge of heaven is the real, solid, tangible world. It's more real, it's more solid, and it's more tangible than the visitors are able to bear. The grass there is stiff and hard and sharp as nails so that walking on it is painful for the visitors. Even a daisy is as hard as a diamond and as heavy as a sack of coal, Lewis writes. This is because the bodies of the visitors have become ghostly, transparent, ethereal, lacking substance. The inhabitants of heaven, by contrast, have no problems. Their bodies are solid, real, substantial. The point of what Lewis is saying is that contrary to our experience and understanding, what is really substantial, what is really solid, and what is really able to survive in the next life is not our current bodies, but our future resurrected bodies. Paul tells us elsewhere in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 4, for those who take notes, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're ghostly. They're wispy. They're insubstantial. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And he says in Philippians 3, Our citizenship, where we really belong, is in heaven. And from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. When that day comes, when we take off this temporary body, this tent that we live in at the moment, and put on our eternal body, our true home, It'll be like taking off our pyjamas in the morning to get dressed for the day. Or maybe a better illustration, like taking off our dirty old work clothes to put on our Sunday best to go out. Just like that, we'll be transformed. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, Paul writes in verse 54, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now there's no point us being all stoic and stiff upper lip about this. Death still prevails. We learn that pretty early in life. Our pet dog gets run over and killed by a car. Our favourite uncle succumbs to cancer. Death still has its victory. And it still has a sting in its tail. Our bodies will remain under death's power until Jesus returns. Not a single one of us will be able to escape death if he delays. Death will remain an enemy right up until that day. But death is not merely a natural biological phenomenon. It's a consequence of sin. It's an evil that did not need to exist and would not exist if mankind weren't in rebellion against its creator. But death 
is only temporarily our enemy. That's assuming that you've put your trust in Jesus Christ. When that great resurrection day comes, death will lose its power permanently. Its sting will be removed forever. And that day is coming as surely as the sun rises in the morning. That's why Paul mocks death. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? You can almost hear the taunting in his voice. He ridicules it. Do your worst, death. Throw everything you've got at me. You don't frighten me. And Paul invites us to do the same. He says elsewhere, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us. Note the past tense again. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Saviour, Lord Jesus Christ, who abolished death again, past tense. Jesus Christ abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed as a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Death has been decisively defeated. We don't see the full outworking of it yet, of course, but it's certain that we will at the right time. It's certain because God, who never changes and never goes back on his promises, has guaranteed that we will share in the victory over death. And the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Sin is the deadly poison, the toxin, that ensures that death will follow. While sin remains, it continues to poison us all. And the law is what gives sin its poison. It gives it its power. That doesn't mean that the law is bad. doesn't mean that what God commands is evil. It means that the very existence of the law stirs something within us in our rebellious nature, to break it. Now think about it. A keep off the grass sign immediately makes you want to step on the grass. A private and confidential stamp on a document immediately stirs a fascination with the contents of that document. Is there anything wrong with the keep off the grass sign? Is there anything wrong with the confidential stamp? Of course there isn't. What's wrong resides within us. If there were no sign on the grass, we wouldn't give a second thought to walking on the grass. And we wouldn't be breaking the law either if there was no sign there. So the existence of the sign, the existence of the law, is what stirs us to disobey. And the existence of the law makes sin even more flagrant and heinous. For we're without excuse. The power of the law to tempt us will soon be removed forever though. 
Paul writes, but thanks be to God who gives us, present tense, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory has already been won. The evidence of that victory is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why his resurrection is so important, but also why it's so encouraging to us. Now, there's still mopping up battles going on in this war, as we know. After a peace treaty was signed with the Japanese at the end of World War II, there were still some soldiers who either didn't get the message or who refused to give up the battle. One soldier continued the battle for nearly 30 years after the Second World War ended, killing or wounding nearly three dozen people. And so it is for us. The victory is decisive. But we'll continue to face the mopping up battles as long as we live. We'll continue to face resistance from the enemy until that day when Jesus finally returns. But this victory is so certain, this future victory is so certain that Paul speaks of it as if it's our possession now. Now these last few years have brought changes in our society at a neck-snappingly fast pace. The way Facebook and Twitter and other social media platforms have a virtual monopoly on the internet and dominate our relationships couldn't be foreseen probably only 20 years ago. Issues like gay marriage weren't even on the radar of most people 10 years ago. Now it's considered the norm. Other issues such as gender dysphoria weren't part of our collective knowledge even two years ago. But in such a short time, they've not only become accepted, but also promoted, and even to some degree, imposed on us. This rapid pace of change is hard to process. How do I keep up with it all? How do I maintain my Christian distinctives in a world that increasingly wants to marginalise and maybe even outlaw my faith? Maybe it's easier just to bow to the pressure, to follow the world's lead. It'd certainly be safer, at least in this life. I wouldn't have to face criticism and attack for being on the wrong side of history. Or maybe I should withdraw from society entirely, gather a group of like-minded individuals and set up a commune somewhere in the bush, get off grid and become Mm self-sustaining. Then I won't need to engage society at all. Or maybe I should get militant, arguing, protesting, marching, organising to overthrow the government. Maybe I could form some sort of resistance group like those that fought against the Nazis in World War II. But all three options, as tempting as they are in different ways and as available as they are to people today, are not on the table for us, according to Paul. Now, all people gravitate to one or the other of those options depending on their experience, their worldview, their personality types. But in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his victory over sin and death, how should we respond? Paul tells us in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding, 
in the work of our Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. Bowing to the pressure to conform or escaping from society or trying to bring down the government are not options that Paul gives us. Rather, we're to cling more firmly to our faith. Unshakable in the knowledge that the Lord has something better in store for us sometime in the future. And more than that, we're to continue to obey him, to love our brothers and sisters, to serve our neighbours in his name. We're to engage with them, even with our enemies, for their good and for the opportunity to make Christ known to them. For we have the promise, the guarantee, that the work we do in Christ is never wasted. Even if it falls on deaf ears, even if it goes unappreciated and unrecognised, even if it draws criticism and attack, it is never wasted. And notice Paul tells us not to do our work grudgingly as if we have better things to do with our time. He tells us to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Do it with glad hearts. Do it with joy. Even do it sacrificially. In fact, this specific doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of those who follow him inspired Paul to work harder than anyone else, he tells us in verse 10 of this chapter. Our work here and our obedience in this life matters. Our good deeds, our work done in the Lord will outlast us. They will count into the next life. Earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul wrote, If anyone builds on the foundation of gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay or straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. If anyone's work built on that foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. That tells me that the things we do in this life have eternal value. That tells me that this life is important. In a similar vein, Jesus warned, the good person out of the good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Think of that. Every word we speak, we have to give account for. What we do in this life matters. For by your words you'll be justified and by your words you'll be condemned. And speaking of those who would criticise us for our determination to follow and obey the Lord, Peter wrote, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God, Paul wrote in Romans 14. And Hebrews it tells us, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The truth of the resurrection of the dead is not just a hope for the future. 
It's a truth about the significance of what we are and what we do today. Since, it's, since God is going to transform this world and since there will be some continuity with our body in the next life, then what we do here makes a difference there. Friends, that should be a great encouragement to us all. Very few Christians are public figures and very few of them are superstars like Martin Luther was in his day or D.L. Moody or Billy Graham. Very few get public recognition or accolades. Most of us do our work out of the public eye. Most of us serve quietly and faithfully in the background with little recognition and no acknowledgement. But none of it will be lost. None of it is wasted. If there were no resurrection, it would all be meaningless. It would all be in vain. But since it is done in the Lord, it can no more perish than he can perish. So the doctrine of resurrection, indeed the whole gospel message, should be our motivation for abounding in the work of the Lord. Because of the resurrection of Christ and the assurance of our future final victory over death, life, even with all its difficulties, is not in vain. Our struggle with sin, as hard as it may be, is not wasted. And Paul began this chapter by reminding the Corinthians that they had stood firm on the doctrine that he would preached to them about the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now he closes with an encouragement to remain firm in that knowledge and to let it shape their everyday lives. It's good advice for us too. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.